Well, this morning we're going to look at a very familiar uh, passage uh, of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, we see John the Baptist probably more detailed than any of the other gospels. None of the other gospels tell us that he was related to Jesus. None of the other gospels tell us who his parents are. None of the other gospels give us the birth story of John. Uh, none of the other gospels spend hardly any time with John the Baptist other than he showed up in the wilderness, preached a message, baptized Jesus, and was killed by Herod at some point. That's usually about all we get. But Luke has gone out of his way to include a lot of information about John the Baptist. And the question then is why? Because Luke is writing to somebody specifically. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. He says, I, I, I'm writing these things. I've done my homework. I've researched all of my sources. I've talked to people that were eyewitnesses. Uh, a, a bunch of people have already tried to write it down, so I've gathered that together. And I've, I've making this account for you, Theophilus, so you would know for certain that what you've been taught about Jesus is the truth. And, and as we go through Luke's gospel, that's the, that's the lens we need to remember is in place. That Luke is writing to somebody to encourage them in their faith. That no matter what they face and the questions they may have, that, that he's written this so that those questions can be answered. When we think about John the Baptist, we, we often don't think about the impact he had. Uh, the, the New Testament kind of tends to downplay uh, his impact, but when you, you read through Luke's account, and, and I'm talking Luke and Acts now, kind of as because they're two volumes, one story, um, when we get to John the Baptist, he introduces him the most, but he also includes the fact that by the time Paul gets to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he finds a group of people that have responded to John the Baptist's ministry, have received baptism for the repentance of sins, but that's all they know. But it's already in Ephesus, which is like in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> and this is years and years later. They still haven't heard of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But they have responded to John the Baptist's ministry, and that spread in fact, it spread to the point that there is a group in Iraq called the Mandeans who today still practice the baptism of John and view John the Baptist as the greatest prophet ever sent by God. To this day. So his ministry has had a, a long, long impact. And today I want us to look at John the Baptist as he prepares the way for Jesus. And we're going to look at John the Baptist's context, his message, his ethics, and his mission. And see what we can pull from this. Uh, John chapter, or Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 uh, to 20. And let's stand as we read this together. <clears throat> In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ... John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing Luke gives us is the context, the historical context. He gives us a whole raft of names and where they, were, where they were ruling. Now, if just giving us an anchoring date in history was the main point, then the first one was all that he needed. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, or Caesar, uh, yeah, Tiberius Caesar. That's enough to just give us, that's the date, that's the year. So why does he include all these other people? Pontius Pilate being governor, Herod, Philip, Lysanias. And some of these we know and a few we don't have much information on. Philip and Lysanias we don't have a lot on, but the others we definitely do. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, which is from 14 to 37 AD. There's some quick dates here. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judah, 26 to 36 AD. A 10-year window of time. Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, 4 BC to 39 AD. 
Again, very interesting time frame. Philip and, and uh, Lysanias, we don't have a lot of information on. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, normally you only have one high priest. But Annas became high priest back in about 6 AD, and his family then kind of became the family that ruled. He handed it off, his, and it was kind of like the high priesthood went to the highest bidder, too. Uh, so there was some problems here, definitely. Uh, Caiaphas is his uh, son-in-law, who then, uh, his high priesthood ran from 18 to 36 A.D., all covered the ministries of John and Jesus within the space of about a two-year window on either side, uh, collectively from 26 to 34 AD. And so Luke first, he solidifies this in a very narrow historical window for the life and ministry of John and Jesus. But there's something more that's going on here yet because we're going to see almost every one of those names later in the story. Uh, James Edwards in the Pillar New Testament Commentary says, a personal judgment about Jesus and the gospel will be required of near, nearly all the named officials in, in, this, in these opening two verses. John is going to confront Herod, and he has to de determine whether he's going to repent or continue to live in sin. Jesus will appear before Herod and Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas at the end of the book. Almost all of them. <clears throat> and then Caesar? Well, Paul's going to get there eventually. And remember, this, is, this whole story starts with John the Baptist's birth, but it goes all the way to Paul in Rome for two years ministering out of his house and sharing the gospel. That's Luke's story arc. From John the Baptist all the way to Paul in Rome. Luke and Acts, when we read them together, as Luke intended. So all of these men at some point are going to have to come to terms with who Jesus is. The most powerful men in the world at the time, and in Judea, and in Judaism are going to have to face the reality of who Jesus is. So he gives us that context. This is, this is where it starts. And then he says, The word of the Lord, or the word of God, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And most commentators will note that, that this is almost identical to the, the introduction of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah receives the word of the Lord. It's in the wilderness, it's around the region of the Jordan, and, and, and all of these descriptions should remind us of something. The Word of God comes in the wilderness. Exodus 19 to 20. God calls people out of, he, he brings his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them into the wilderness, and there they receive the Word of the Lord. They have to be taken out of their oppression. They have to be taken out of the city. They have to be taken out of slavery to receive the word of the Lord. The word of God comes in the wilderness and around the region of the Jordan. What's significant about the Jordan? Jordan River, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, this was the end of the wandering and the entering into the promised land. 
It was the end of the exodus. And so it was the end of slavery. The word of the Lord comes in the wilderness around the region of the Jordan at this momentous occasion in Joshua where they cross the Jordan and everything changes. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and Luke includes more of it than, than Matthew does, or Luke, or, or Mark. Verses f- 3 to 5. But it starts off, chapter 40 starts off, Comfort, comfort my people, for their time of, of paying for their sins is over, and, and, and I am going to restore them. It is a message of reconciliation. It is a message that says the exile is going to be over. Exile is over. Exodus is over. A new exodus is happening here. And just in this tail end, this description of John's ministry, this is the hope that Luke is saying. This is what was happening through John and Jesus' ministry. A new exile, the the end of exile, and the restoration of God's people. And this is the historical and now theological context that Luke is creating so that we can read the story right. And then Luke quotes the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And this is the part that none of the other gospels include. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked will become straight, the rough Places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. It is the arrival of the King. The arrival of the Lord Yahweh. If you go back to to, uh, the Isaiah quote, the Lord is in capital letters indicating the covenant name of God who is coming. And all flesh will see his salvation. Not just the Jewish people, everyone. This is, the, this is the start, and this is Luke's message throughout. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. This goes back to even Luke chapter 2 and verse 30 in, in, the, in the song of, of Simeon. He will be, uh, you know, he will be for, the, for your people Israel the glory for your people Israel, and a light to the Gentiles. And then at the very end, the last few verses of the book of Acts, and all nations heard the gospel, Acts 28, 28. This is like Luke putting brackets around the whole ministry of Jesus. And this puts it in the context, too, of the received word of the Lord in the wilderness, that Exodus event, the prophetic word. And it's like he is reminding us that the law and the prophets testified to all that Jesus was. Remember a few weeks ago on Easter, I was bemoaning the fact that Luke, you know, on the road to Emmaus, it just says, and Jesus opened the scriptures so that they could understand that the Messiah had to live and die and be buried and on the third day rise again. And he explained it from all the scriptures. But he didn't tell us what those scriptures were. (laughs) 
And he didn't say, and Jesus said, well, if you go back in your Bibles to this verse and this verse and this verse, I think what Luke is doing right now is he's saying the law and the prophets, the received word of the Lord, the prophetic word, pay attention as I tell the whole story. And then that verse won't bug you so much because I'm going to weave it into the whole narrative. Luke to Acts, and I'm going to tell you how Jesus fulfilled all of Scripture. So pay attention. I'm not going to spell it out for you. I'm going to actually make you work. Because it takes reading and rereading, hearing the story over and over again so that we get it. It goes deeper with every reading. So John's ministry of John's context, Luke is setting up the historical and the theological framework that he's going to tell the rest of the story through. He does it in these few verses here. Second thing, John's message. All the crowds come out to him and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to escape the coming wrath? Now, interestingly, if you go to Matthew's gospel, it says the Pharisees and the scribes came to him and he said to them, you brood of vipers. Luke's casting a much wider net. The crowds. It says the crowds. Nobody's exempt. It's a much wider net. Who warned you to escape the wrath that is to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Basically, he's saying judgment is coming. God is on the move. Change your life. You're going to need to change your life. Wrath is coming. Again, from from, uh, James Edwards, he says, God's wrath does not compromise or contradict his goodness or his holiness. His wrath promotes his steadfast goodness. For truth is by nature intolerant of error, as love is of indifference and hate and goodness is of evil. In the New Testament, God's wrath is not final and irrevocable, but a penultimate warning of the consequences of rejecting his divine will. God's wrath, when we are warned of it, it is not that it is final and unavoidable, but it is the warning to change our lives and reorient them to God's purposes. Flee the wrath. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is repeated a number of times. And he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is John's message. It is a warning to promote and encourage fruitful repentance. Now, repentance, often we think of, I'm sorry for my sins, please forgive me, end of line. John says, great, but live differently then. If you're really sorry for the sin you've committed, you will stop doing it. Change your life. Change the values that you're living out. Repentance needs to bear fruit in the evidence of it is a change in our actions, our attitudes, and our values. How we live and why we live the way we do. 
That's what repentance needs to lead to. It's, I don't think it's repentance without that. It's not just feeling sorry that we screwed up and we got caught. It's actually changing how we live it out. And so the crowds ask, and this is where we get to John's ethics. The crowds, the tax collectors and soldiers, we have three groups all asking exactly the same question. What do we have to do then? Remember when Peter shares the gospel in Acts chapter 2, the crowd, the, the, the people are cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And this is the question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. In light of the gospel, what should we do? Well, John gives three answers, but it's kind of one answer. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Be generous with those in need. Collect no more than you're authorized to collect, tax collectors. Don't extort money. Huh, interesting. It's all about relationships and money. How we treat people, and by the way, discipleship should be a line in your budget. Actually, it should control your budget. The values of the gospel need to control your spending. Your spending ultimately is an indicator of your values. What do you really value? It was encouraging. Last week I, I, I was preaching at First Baptist, but I got back here in time and then I went and had lunch with the missions team and with John Voort. And he said, you know, this is, this is great. Nine more kids have been sponsored by Gospel Chapel, bringing the total close to 100 children that are sponsored through compassion by this church. That's a value in generosity and serving others. Awesome. Now that's just the ones he knows about. <laughs> that's not including those of you who sponsor via World Mission or sponsored uh, through the Watoto Children's Choir that was here or other organizations or give faithfully to the camp. You know, when we went through the vision process last year, one of the key things we talked about was what are the real values of Gospel Chapel? And we had this thing up on the wall that had like, here are our core values. And I said, great, but nobody knows what those are. Nobody can rattle off what our core values are. So I asked the question, what causes the most fights around here? That's the core values as a group. Conflict areas. Because we don't fight when it doesn't matter. But kids around here, you mess with the children's ministry, you're in for trouble. <laughs> and it's proven over and over by the fruit. It's proven over and over by the fruit of this group. We love our children. And we'll sacrifice for them. And that's what, that's what John's getting at here. He says, when you repent, when you, when you take on the values of the kingdom, your ethics have to be shaped by the kingdom of God and what he wants. And that is to care for those who have less than you. To not hoard. If you have two tunics, share with him who has none. Now, in the ancient Near East, you kind of had, uh, you know, you had two things. You had your tunic and then you had your cloak. And that was pretty much it for your wardrobe, two pieces. So, 
If you got an extra pair of underwear, share with him who doesn't have any. It's basically what he's saying here. Tax collectors. Oh, man. Here's a group that comes up over and over in the Gospels, right? Why does Jesus keep eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes? It's like, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure the CRA guys don't like to be lumped in with that group. Right? They don't see themselves that way. Well, back here, we've got a, a group of guys who are basically, they're collecting taxes, and they could set up anywhere. Like, they could set up and go, hey, you know what? On the, there's two exits out of the parking lot, so we're just going to block those off, and people are going to have to pay, I don't know, 20 bucks to get out today. How would that go over? Not, not, not well, right? But that's what tax collectors at this time could do. And they were fellow Jewish people who were taxing their own people, which was just an abomination. And it was kind of a pyramid scheme. And we get to the, it's interesting, we get to the very end and the very last kind of thing that happens before the triumphal entry is the conversion of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, high up on the pyramid scheme. Right, because you get tax collectors under you who have tax collectors under them and it all kind of trickles up to you. Woo, good deal. Extorting money from people. He says, don't do that. Don't collect any more than you're authorized to collect. Don't do that. Don't oppress your own people. Don't make life financially difficult for others. Again, tax collectors are disgraced by their family expelled from the synagogue. They were disqualified. Uh, if, if they got like a, a court summons, they wouldn't actually get it. You couldn't get called up for jury duty if you were a tax collector. You were automatically excluded from all sorts of things in society. So to the most disgraced and rejected people, John just says, just be honest with your work. And then soldiers, these would not be Roman soldiers, but kind of the Jewish cops. This is a, a, a group of Jewish people that, that were working kind of in concert with Rome. They, he basically said, don't abuse your power for financial gain again. Be content with your wages. So John's ethics are basically this. How we live bears the fruit of our repentance. And how we treat others and how we spend our resources, our time, our money, our energy, and our power reveals our true values. What do you really value? Take a look at where you're spending your time, your money, your resources, your influence. Those reveal your true values. We're working through this probably in like about a three-week uh, series of questions in authentic living. What are your real values and how then do you live that out so that those core values, especially when we push it down to what is, how, do, how much do I value my relationship with God? Okay, what's the evidence? What are the actionable things that I do on a regular basis so that I, I prove to myself that God is a value, that things don't get crowded out? You know, when, when you choose to do one thing, you are also, that, that kind of tells you where your values are sitting. If you value truth, you say, I value truth and yet you cheat on your taxes, then truth is a secondary issue. Truth isn't your actual value. So what are your values? All three answers have to do with how we treat others 
in relation to our generosity versus our greed. Fourth, we have John's expectations, verses 15 to 17. John is there and he's calling people and it, it says he's preaching the good news to them. The God, he is gospeling toward them. He is calling them to, to, to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying that, that the, the God is coming and, and this is all very messianic for the people at the time. And they're, they're wondering, is this it? Is, is John the Messiah to come? He's gathering people and people are coming to him in the wilderness and they've seen this before a number of times. It happens really actually over and over from, uh, uh, there's a number of messianic groups that pop up in the wilderness and they gather people to them and they arm themselves and they try to go and throw at the Romans and it never works. So they're seeing this again. So, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. And John's saying, nope, this is not it. I am not that person. Someone else is coming. He is way, way more powerful than me and way more influential. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, all Luke and Mark that share this quote, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Luke says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So sometimes we think the Holy Spirit and fire baptism is a reference to Pentecost where the flames of tongue, uh, fire come down. But within the context of what Luke is uh, saying here in the quote uh, from John here is that this is, this is an act both of blessing God's people and judgment. The fire is part of the judgment. He's clearing his fleshing, threshing floor, parallelism, to gather the wheat and to burn the chaff the Holy Spirit, and the fire. It's not just blessing, it's judgment. A division is coming. Remember what Simeon said, this child is going to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he is going to bring division. And there's going to be some pain around this. The Holy Spirit and fire. It's a symbol of of the messianic kingdom coming, but the judgment that comes along with it, you can't have one without the other. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. And this is really where Luke leaves John the Baptist. We see him pop up a little later, the disciples of John the Baptist, they kind of, Jesus is doing stuff and he's, he's like, oh, wait a minute, this is not quite what I thought. And he sends disciples, and John's already in prison. We'll get to that a little later. But basically, Luke, Luke shuffles John the Baptist off the scene here, and Jesus takes center stage from here on to the end of the gospel. The last thing he says here, but Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved for him by Herodias, and Luke doesn't bother to spell that out for us. We have to go to other gospels for that about his brother's wife and the evil things that Herod done added to all this, he locked him up in prison. John the Baptist's mission was to proclaim the good news and to prepare the way for Jesus. And that was it. And then he is out of the way, off the stage. 
key takeaways from, from this passage. First of all, in verses one to three, we see that God is active in history, even as bleak as it seems. All these guys, Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, the high priesthood, all corrupt, all brutal, all bloody, all authoritarian badness. And in the midst of it, God is at work calling people to himself. The political situation in any country is wholly secondary to the work of God. It doesn't need to be going well for the church to flourish. In fact, it's often the opposite. God is active in history no matter how bleak it seems. Second thing I see in this passage is that restoration requires repentance. The people needed to leave the cities and the towns and the comfort of their homes to go to the wilderness, to hear the word of God, to be baptized by John, and to be challenged to live out the repentance in their everyday lives. Restoration requires repentance first, and then repentance requires a recalibration of our values. How we live, how we invest and spend our lives and treat others matters so much. We need to live out and walk out our repentance and bear fruit. And lastly, to experience Jesus the Messiah as John hopes to, longs for, depends on a response to the call to repentance and the recalibration of our lives and our priorities. John answered them saying, I am gonna baptize you with water, but somebody's coming and he is even more wonderful and powerful. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And in John's gospel, when two of his followers come to him and say, hey, look, there's the guy that you were talking about. John's like, yeah, follow him, stop following me. It's basically what he says. We need to reorient our lives around Jesus. And then the context and the message and the ethics that Jesus is going to spell out throughout this whole gospel of Luke that we're going to spend, I don't know how long in, are going to hit us. God is always active in history. His kingdom is always advancing. Nothing can stand against his purposes. Even the worst of the emperors, the governors, and the religious elite will all have to give an account to Jesus and how they responded to the gospel. And so with those who came to John, may our question be, Lord, this week, what do I need to do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Because restoration requires repentance and repentance requires recalibration of our values and experiencing Jesus rests on all of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word does, comes to us and points us to Jesus. And this was John's whole mission. This was the mission of all of the law and the prophets. And we're reminded of that today as we read the last 
the last voice, really, of the Old Testament era, pointing to the new covenant in Christ. And so, Lord, may we, with, with those who came to John, may we just say, how do we live? What changes do we need to make? So that the repentance that we, we have done or the repentance that we need to do will bear fruit for the kingdom. And so, Lord, give us courage to ask the questions, to pursue your ethics and how you want us to live. And then, Lord, give us the courage to live it out every day. In Jesus' name, amen.